This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Hey everybody, it's Carm Capriato, Remarkable Results Radio, here at the 44th Annual MAX Mobile Air Climate Systems in the Rosen Center. Where'd you pick this thing, Peter? Out of a catalog. Oh my, <laughs> that's too funny. It's a huge place. Yeah, it's always a challenge. We have to find a place that will give us enough space and then has enough rooms and has yeah. a reasonable enough cost. Wow, it looks like all of that works here. It does. My watch has told me that already this morning I have a thousand steps and I just came from my room. I think we're, uh, staff is generally pushing 20 to 22,000 a day. It's amazing, right yeah. near this convention center, a lot going on there. Listen, three decades, attendees can learn from 35 speakers in the 44 years that this has been going on, 70 hours of mobile AC and vehicle thermo management training. I have learned so much. In these three days of doing interviews, Peter, so thank you so much for having us down. And we've walked away with incredible interviews. And I have to say that they're mostly technical. And I think there's going to be a lot to share with people about, about refrigerants and coolants and the respect that is, needs to be garnered from working on air conditioning systems because it's not your grandpa's air conditioning systems anymore. Hey, let's face it, your shop management system is the most critical tool in your shop. And Napa Tracks will move your shop into the SMS fast lane with on-site training, six days a week support, and local representation. Find Napa Tracks on the web at napatracs.com. I want to set the stage. We have this incredible episode about the pioneers that every year there's pioneers honored that have meant so much to the industry. And we have two of the pioneer award winners here. Peter, being the president of Max, I wanted to have him here because you kicked it off yesterday when you gave these honors away. Yep. Let's introduce everybody who's here. Someone who couldn't make it was Robert Brocks. Yep. Robert's, yeah. Robert's got some family challenges at home yeah. and we were sad to not have him with us, but Robert's from Red Dot and Robert has been a stalwart of the industry working primarily on the heavy duty and the side of the business. Got it. Larry Hayes is here. Man, I just can't believe your incredible legacy, Larry. Here I'm from Buffalo in Lockport, New York, had Harrison Radiator, and he said he was, he's been there once, but a legacy air conditioning person. And th the thing that I love about Larry and the honor that he has, that he was the first board member who was a technician. Yes, that's correct. And he retired from being a technician. This is the coolest part, I think, of your whole background. It's really nice. And having done so much, I think with GM, right? Yes. Yeah, with GM. Primarily with GM. Yeah, primarily I worked at a Buick GMC dealer for 40 years. Damn glad to have you, I'm sure. It closed the door. You weren't locked in the building, though. No. Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> and from Phoenix. You've known nothing but heat. I've seen 122 degrees a day. And when it was that hot, at lunchtime it was over 110. I called my friend in Lockport, New York, and told him what the temperature was. We'll keep building that, that thermal heat exchange <laughs> stuff. We'll work our butts off. Tom Massey's also here. Great story with you, Tom. I can't wait to get into it. Owns a shop, a air part distributorship, fixes air conditioning machines. You went from South Dakota to Las Vegas where the heat was. 
where else do you go for air conditioning? That's where all the money is in air conditioning. <laughs> the, you got all those the, limos the, and all that other the stuff. The reality is that I went, we put the snow shovel on the front of the car and we drove until people started asking what it was. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then we stopped. <laughs> now we're home. <laughs> After enough years shoveling snow and fighting the 30 below weather, we decided enough's enough. I was talking to him yesterday. I love to hear these legacy stories. We don't do enough. I don't do enough. The podcasters in the Aftermarket Radio Network, we don't do enough. And we've been talking. We need to do more legacy interviews. There's so many incredible stories. And one of them is I was talking to Tom yesterday. He said, yeah, he said, the specialty stuff. We love to do the specialty stuff. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, those big limos. They're like two football fields long. <laughs> they ask us to come in and do all the hosing and all the air conditioning for them. That, that has, over the years, developed into my forte is working with those people to design systems that will work in, in the climate. It seems that over the years, we used to talk to suppliers and vendors about their units. And the standard phrase was it works in 95% of the country. And I think Larry can attest to this as well in Phoenix that we're not in 95% of the country, unfortunately. A lot of it was left on our own to figure out what works and what doesn't. And over a period of time, that's where my forte has come from. What extra special stuff had to be done on these limos? Having been in the business as long as I have, I saw the transition from R12 to 134. And through association with Max and the training and so forth that we had to prepare for 134, I saw all the test data and everything from the test that said, yeah, it works okay at 106 degrees. We opened in Las Vegas in 93, just as that transition was happening. One of the first months over there, the fire department came to me and said, we've got these new ambulances. And at 106 degrees, we opened the back door to get some cool air in and we're burning up a compressor on every run and the manufacturer can't tell us what to do with it. We went out and I said, it's supposed to work at 106. The test says it works at 106. So we better find out what really is going on. And on a 118 degree day, we took everything we could lay our hands on that would measure temperature and went out to a stoplight in front of my store uh, in three lanes of traffic and we took temperature readings at bumper height. The lowest reading we got that day was 152 and 159 was the highest. So that's the temperature coming across the front bump. Off the pavement. Right at the front bumper right. of the cars right. and in traffic. So that's what we're dealing with. And then when you get down on the strip and eight or nine lanes of traffic in places, six o'clock in the afternoon, a lot of the manufacturers try to put the condenser underneath the vehicle because they don't want them on the top for aesthetics and all that. Unfortunately, the catalytic converter, the exhaust, the engine temperature and everything underneath the vehicle can drive that temperature up considerably higher than that 152 degrees. So that's what we had to deal with. What'd you do? It's all about getting rid of heat. An air conditioner is nothing but a heat pump. What you pump out of the passenger compartment, you have to get rid of outside. It takes a lot of heat exchange to do that. So a one-to-one -one ratio of what you're pumping out of the inside to the outside doesn't hold true out there. You have to have at least about a 30% more condenser than you have evaporator. Obviously moving it from the pavement at that temperature to the rooftop, the highest temperatures I've ever measured on the rooftop is about 133. We're dealing with almost a 50 degree difference when we come from the belly to the rooftop. So why do I need science class? Because 
This is all science. Common sense when it comes right down to it. I probably don't, <laughs> can't argue with that either. <laughs> to your point, we've got to take three times more of the heat out. You do the math, you find the unit, the technology, the chemical to work the right fit. Maybe you probably have to have bigger fans. I don't know. It's all about heat transfer. Yeah. yeah. Getting rid of the heat is the name of the game. If you can get rid of the heat, the systems will last a long time. If you overheat them and drive the pressure and the temperature way up, all the rubber vulcanizes, gets hard and brittle, yeah. and everything leaks. So. <laughs> it's something I wouldn't have even thought about. The listeners are going to so appreciate that story. Larry, give us a great legacy story of the 40 years you put in at the dealership. Well, the customer that comes into a dealership, they want to know how soon the car is going to be fixed because they're not paying the bill. In the aftermarket, when the customer comes in, they're concerned about the cost, but they're paying it. There's a big difference of the clientele between an independent shop and a dealership. Sure is. And the aftermarket pushes SAE. The general manufacturers do it too, but I've never had a customer ask me if I was certified. They just want to know when the car was going to be done. You also, you being from Las Vegas and then in Phoenix, huge difference in the climate, not only in temperature, but it's so little humidity in Las Vegas, so little humidity in Arizona compared to Miami and so forth, that the AC system essentially has to work a little bit differently because you're not really just trying to dry out the air. You've already got dry air. You need to do that heat exchange, as you said. The lower humidity, we can actually pull the temperatures of an evaporator down into the 20s without them icing up. Whereas for my history in South Dakota, we had the humidity up there. Once you get to about 28 degrees, you start getting ice on the evaporator and you'll end up with a block of ice if you get lower than that. I've seen them run down as low as 10 or 15 degrees surface temperatures on the evaporator and will only ice up a few days out of the year around July when the monsoon season comes to Southwest. I find it so interesting that so many of our young people join the industry and they have no idea what a futuristic career path could be for them because we as owners and entrepreneurs don't set that up enough. I think it's great that I have a chance to interview Peter, Larry, Tom, to hear their stories and where they've been, what they do, the recognition that they've received. We've interviewed vice presidents of training at some big aftermarket companies that started as a technician in the local shop, but they had a drive and a desire just like you both did to just learn as much as you possibly can, which is what's so great about Max. This is a great organization and I knew about Max all the time, but I never got as immersed as I have in the last three days. So thanks for that. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you here. Larry, you and I spent a lot of time at the Phoenix Forum yes. with Ward Atkinson. Do you remember when we first tested the first CO2 systems down there in the parking lot? You remember what happened? Yeah, as the car pulled out of the parking lot, it blew the dryer off and put a hole in the fender. <laughs> yeah. For me, that was, okay, I really don't want to have 2,000 pounds of pressure in my uh, my air conditioning system because I don't want to be blowing fenders off. Let's look for a different choice other than <laughs> CO2. <laughs> yeah. Keep going with these legacies. By the way, you've been at Max for two years, but you served the industry. Who'd you work for? I worked for Neutronics for, I don't know, 25 years and was involved in Max and on the board and so forth for a number of years. So uh, retired. You retired and then they did a Michael Corleone on you. Huh? I, yeah, I failed at retirement the first time. And so I'm back at it, but I can guarantee I shall not fail my second. Uh -huh. learn. All right. We'll watch from the sidelines on yeah. that. All right. Larry, when we were spending time in Phoenix and then Tom, when we were spending time diagnosing things, especially when we first came out with 1234 YF, how important were 
the manufacturers, whether it be you know, the Robin Airs of the world or you know, the compressor guys and so forth, Larry, to the process? Was it more they were giving you information or was it more you give me your stuff and then I'm going to figure out what's all wrong with it? Well, the interesting part about the failure of stuff is on the Harrison side, you had Lockport, New York, which was their headquarters, and then Dayton, Ohio, where they built the compressors. Them two people did not get along. When they first come out with the 134A, they had a limited number. They had it on a G-Van, and I took a compressor off, and I know a little bit about compressors, and I had a broken piston in there, and the ball was rolling around. We had to send it back to Dayton, Ohio, and the guy at Dayton said, oh, there was nothing wrong with that compressor. They had to work together. It took a while. Yeah. When we we brought in you know, the first of the 1234YF machines and obviously some of the earlier on one, 134A machines and you got involved in that business. And I would remember getting phone calls from you kind of asking, how does this work? How does that work? And so forth. Because you would say, yeah, I'm seeing more and more machines that have this particular problem. I think it's a learning curve throughout the entire industry. You can sit down as an engineer and figure something out on paper and say, this looks like it ought to work, but that's a pretty diverse area. Just when I look at my own background, I did air conditioning and heating work at 30 below zero at 125, 130 degrees. I got a pretty good perspective across the board. Just because something is designed to work and will work in the lab doesn't mean it works out in the field. A classic example of that is we ran to struggles with certain vendors and I come from a background of installing complete air conditioners back in the ARA days and aftermarket air. We could put a unit in and it would work fine in the shop and we back it out in the parking lot and let it heat soak. And when it gets to be 145 or 150 degrees inside the vehicle, customer comes to pick up the car, starts it and it doesn't cool. And of course he's upset. We're not real happy about the incident either. So we pull it back in the shop and after a couple of minutes, temperature inside the vehicle cools down. Everything works as normal again. Issues with expansion valves sticking open, electronics that don't work when it reaches 140 degrees, but they work just fine at room temperature. So we take the component out, we send it back. They put it on a test bench in a air conditioned lab someplace and says, yep, we don't see anything wrong with it. It's it. perfect. right back to me, yeah, put yeah. it back in again. That's the biggest challenges that we face out there with those temperatures. As far as the machine manufacturers, I give credit to most of them that the feedback that we gave them, for the most part, they took that in consideration and acted on it and corrected a lot of those problems. So. It's a cooperative effort between the end user and the manufacturer and the designer. It all has to work together or it doesn't work. That's the bottom line. With all the manufacturers here, do you see more and more of that? With all of the shop owners, the technicians that are members of Max, do you hear a lot of that language going back and forth at the expo like yesterday? We do. And we, one of the great things about being here is we actually have not just sales reps. We have the engineers who actually design the stuff. So when people have problems, and we encourage everybody when they're at our trade show or wherever they might be within the facility, that if you have a question in a particular manufacturer, you have a question of ask the question because you're not going to have a better opportunity to at least have their ear or get an answer or have them say, I had four people come to me and say that the blue was wearing off the wheels and we might want to look at how well we're painting the wheels so that the blue can stick on there. And I think that's probably one of the primary reasons that I've enjoyed being 
with Max and a Max member that Max did a very good job of engaging the manufacturers. And I don't care who it is, if you're talking Caterpillar, John Deere, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota, over the years, they've all sent their presenters to Max and it's given us a name if nothing else, to call and say, hey, can you help me with this problem? And I've utilized that over the years multiple times with things that uh, you go to the dealership and they said, we can't do anything about it. They escalated up to their rep and we can't do anything about it. However, when you get to the right people, somebody can do something about it. To pursue that avenue or have an avenue to pursue that information has been... Is what Max helps you with. Yeah, it's yeah. been invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, and you saw the same thing, Larry, when we were working down in Phoenix, we'd get all those engineers down there. They would want feedback from you on what problems you guys were seeing. And then you would have the opportunity when you ran into something that was unusual to be able to contact them directly and it established a relationship where you weren't just a random person off the street anymore making the call. You were somebody that they had some trust in. When uh, General Motors decided to come out with it, ACR 2000, they sent the prototypes to the General Motors Desert Proving Grounds. And then through several dealerships, we got the prototype and we they would get our feedback on what was going on, which was very valuable. And one of the engineers at the Desert Proving Ground was a friend of mine. And I convinced him to come to Max one year, the first year he come to Max. And afterwards, he said, I didn't believe there was so much stuff out there because when you're working on just one brand, you only know what's there. Blinders. Yeah, it was very good. And that's progressed here at Max, especially when we have the SAE group with us. We have people in the building here from Ford, General Motors. We have participants from Tesla. We have participants from Stellantis. And, and it's just been a kind of a great learning experience. And they all get to learn from each other. They don't have to disclose any secrets. They just get to learn from each other and say, you know, it's funny. I'm glad you mentioned that. We have the same problem. Even though we're using Denso instead of Mala for our systems, we have that same issue. So how collectively can we solve the problem for all of us? Hey, let's face it. Your shop management system is the single most important tool in your shop, period. Napa Tracks has made selecting the right shop management system easy by offering the industry's best, most comprehensive SMS. Now, it all starts when a local representative meets with you to learn about your business and how you need to run it. After all, it's your shop, so it's your choice. And having local representation is a huge plus. Customizing tracks to your business, whether you're a one-person shop or a large multi-bay or multi-location company, a representative consults with you to help optimize your shop's workflow, efficiency, and profitability. Tracks always has the flexibility to do business how you need to do it, which means it can also grow as your business grows. And unlike the other guys, we'll be there for you after installation with the best training and support in the business. Yes, a learning management system tailored to each role in your company. Simply put, Trax was designed and built for shop owners just like you. Visit us on the web at NapaTrax, that's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S dot com. See anything new on the expo floor yesterday? I can't say that there is any real groundbreaking new material out there. It's great again to be able to be one-on-one -on -one with the manufacturers and getting on the equipment and stuff. It's a great comparison. Back in the days when I first started selling recovery machines, for example, I struggled real hard. I happened to be selling Robin Air at the time 
And I struggled really hard to convince people that they should buy the Robinair versus something out there that was cheaper. After seeing both machines side by side, I went out and bought one of the competitor's machines and set it on my show floor beside the Robinair. And I said, well, here's your choice. You have this one or you have this one. And once they got hands-on, I never sold anything but Robinair. <laughs> so it does give you some perspective sometimes and helps you with seeing what else is out there. Yeah. There's always new people coming in. I say new people coming to the market. New people coming to the U.S. market. This year we had Texa here. Texas, just a huge supplier out of Italy. A beautiful facility, some good people that I know and they make a very nice machine. And they finally decided, you know what? We need to expand to the U.S. market. Tectino came in this year bringing their machine and they specifically wanted to have some conversations with U.S. EPA about approval requirements and so forth. You find it being more and more every day being a global marketplace not only for us exporting things, but for other people wanting to sell here. I also have kind of an interesting perspective on machines. We are a service center for warranty work for all of the machines in the U.S., with the exception of the recent Snap-on. Working on all of them and dealing with their customer service people and so forth, it does make you lean toward certain machines. He's seen the insides. Yeah, that's <laughs> when, uh, it's not always the insides of the machine that's the problem. It's the people on the phone on the oh, other geez. end and yeah. the customer service that can be the bigger problem than the machine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, you mean the little hose, you know, the big one, <laughs> the big brass thing at the end. I can't find that. Can you send me a picture? <laughs> we have certain vendors that we order parts for, and I tell people when they bring the machine in, and in this case, don't call me, I'll call you, and don't expect to call for 30 days. If you get one sooner, you'll be happy. It's kind of like Christmas when you open the parts box that you ordered and you have no idea what's going to be in it. I've had machines where I ordered parts three or four times, given them even the part numbers and still get the wrong parts in the box. Yeah. Larry, what's the oldest car you worked on with air conditioning? Are we going back to the original 1950s? I got a friend right now that's got a 55 Cadillac that's got fat rear in it. It takes R12 and you can convert those to 134A if you change the condenser. But the problem is that people that own them cards, they don't want to change. They want it pure. So you got to find someone that's got some R12. I know a guy. Do you? Wait a I minute. A guy. I heard a funny story. The other, we, we always asking, can you get R12 to somebody? And he goes, I, you got to know somebody who knows somebody. So they picked up the phone. You'll hear it on the podcast, right? They pick up the phone. And he says, hey, blankety blank, it could have been you. Maybe it was, oh, Peter told me to call. I think it was, Peter told me to call. Oh, no problem. How many you want? <laughs> there's still plenty out there. There's, it's not It's not gone and there's still plenty out there. You just have to find who has it. And it really is one of those who you know. We stock our 12 and we use it every day. See, I, now we know. I have never recommended retrofitting vehicles in Las Vegas. My recommendation has been always to stay with what the manufacturer designed and built. It's going to work the best and last the longest. Retrofitting an R12 car in the cooler climates is not usually a problem. But in the temperatures that we have out there, if you just take the R12 out of a vehicle and put 134 in without upgrading the condenser and getting more, more condensing capacity to get rid of that heat, you will raise the pressure by approximately 100 pounds. And when you raise the pressure 100 pounds, you raise the internal temperature and in the compressor and the hoses by 75 degrees. And therein lies the problem. 
they'll make cold air, but you won't get any life expectancy because that additional 75 degrees vulcanizes the rubber in the system. And six months later, you're replacing everything for leaks. So you save a couple of bucks putting 134 in and then spend $1,000 a year replacing compressors. So we've never seen the advantage in that. And that's the way we've approached it ever since day one with retrofit. This is the wisdom. There it is. This and, is it. And it's funny because even the manufacturers can learn something from people like Tom and Larry when they come here, when they have these kind of conversations, because what applied way back when still applies today and will apply tomorrow. Yeah, that's really come true. And there's not that many reman compressors left in the market anymore. But I did some training with some of the reman people years ago during the transition period between R12 and 134. They were having trouble understanding why their compressors were failing. I was sitting down with them and explaining the heat situation and the rubber vulcanizing and so forth in these. And this was something that went right over their head because they hadn't even thought about the idea that, you know, adding the extra heat is what's going to cause that compressor to fail. And some of them implemented some of that information and improved their product. Amazing how all those things work. Larry, you lived very close to the proving grounds, GM, right? You told me this morning what their street number was in yours. It was like in the neighborhood. When I was a little kid in 1953, we moved to 15th Street in Roosevelt. At 20th Street in Roosevelt was a GM proving ground tonight. Before they moved to the desert, they just had an office. That's all they'd done. But... I know that they used to design the system for about 100 degrees. Then they finally realized that doesn't work in Vegas or Phoenix. So they upped it to 110 degrees days before they started testing the AC. And one thing that reminded me when Peter talked at the Scottsdale when they had the SAE symposium, about four to 500 system engineers from all over the world telling what's new and they had four cars. One year they had four cars to test. And one of the tests was a CO2 system. And the criteria was they parked the car under the shade. At a certain time, they parked it out in the sun, facing the sun. And then when they got four people ready to test the car, they only let two in at a time. You can't start the car. You got a pad. You had to write down the temperature of everywhere. And then they'd done the road test, stopped here, wrote down what the temperature was. That was quite an interesting experience on how they tested the cars. And that's the way when GM Harrison, when they tested a new car, that's how they tested it. They didn't go put it on research and take it out of the shade. That's how they tested the cars. Yeah. Larry, tell me a little bit about the proving ground itself. What's at the proving ground? Five mile test track. They have a straightaway test track that is absolutely flat. You had to work there that I did get in there two or three times and go around on a deal and involved in meetings. I remember one time they invited me there and I asked him about a put and die in the AC system at the factory. And this one engineer was totally against it. Well, it was Sue Jim Resitech that they changed their mind on that. Very interesting, the stuff they'd done there. Yeah, Jim Resitech, former chairman of Max, chairman of the board of Max, somebody we've both known for, I don't know, forever, at least since I've been in the industry, which is only half as long as you've been in the business. And you developed a real friendship and Jim actually presented you for your Pioneer Award this year. And they brung, they had a rep going around to the dealers 
that worked for Harrison, and he brought Jim Resitek by our shop, and we talked about some things. I was doing something, and I asked Jim what he thought of it. So when he left, he told the guy that was his guide, he said, he knows what he's doing. But the other thing is, years ago, Jody Markle was the head of Harrison Aftermarket. Did you know Joe? I did. And uh, Walt Withered, the other engineer, brought him down to our shop, and I'd happened to do a V5 cutaway compressor sitting on my bench, and uh, Joe wouldn't talk to me about any of the problems we were having until he had that compressor. And mm-hmm. then we have done a friendship, and he's a guy I called and asked him what the temperature was. When it was real cold in Buffalo, I'd call him and say, how's the temperature? Yeah, and we have a... Unfortunately, he's passed away now. A very close friend of mine, really just a tremendously close friend of mine, who also became a very close friend of yours, Paul Weisler, an icon really in the industry as far as automotive mm-hmm. knowledge and all of the writing that he did for all of the various publications. Tell me a little bit your, about your relationship with Paul. And- First time I went to Max Deal, every time they asked a question and answer to they had to wait on Paul to get a microphone. I suggested to Max, they just give him the microphone. That's what we did eventually. True story, because we would go to our SAE meetings and you just knew that Paul was going to have questions and comments and so forth. So we literally would dedicate a microphone to Paul. He didn't have to start talking and then we had to pause him and he'd get frustrated and then we'd have to get him a mic. And- I got to know him and then I sent problems that we had. In them days, dealerships had technical bulletins. The aftermarket did not. They didn't have the books. They didn't have the deal. And so I would give him stuff to put in the service report. He'd done a lot of that. And some of the things, we had one incident with a Suburban. It was eating up a compressor at 700 miles. And we got Harrison involved from Lockport. And it was a rear expansion valve that was a problem. In fact, Walt was retired. And he even went to Vegas to fix one at the dealer. And Paul Weiser wrote that up given the aftermarket, because if it hadn't been for Paul, if he run across it, you wouldn't know what to do. It was that rare of a problem. Yeah, Paul was an a, a, a amazing guy. I would always ask Paul, you travel, and what kind of car you get? He says, whatever the motor pool gives me. I said, so you don't have to rent cars? He said, oh, I make a phone call, and then the motor pool decides from which manufacturer they want me to drive their car, hoping that I would, if I had positive thoughts, that I might put them to print for that manufacturer. Paul come to Phoenix one time and we hooked up and we went to dinner. And then a couple of months later, he come, but he forgot my phone number. He just showed up in my house. Remember how to get there. We went and done some things and had dinner. And then I made a suggestion on a tool and I asked Paul who to give it to. And he said to give it to Lyle Tool Company, which I did. Ten years later, I get a letter from them. We reviewed your idea. Three other technicians done the same thing. We're going to go into the deal. The bottom line is I get 1% of sales for 10 years. Wish I was smart enough to make more tools. (laughs) (laughs) And then I went to Vegas one time. David Rowland, did you know David Rowland? Of course. Well, David Rowland worked for GM Tools, and we were having breakfast. And this other mechanic at a Chevrolet dealer asked me to make a tool for him. He told me what he wanted because they were having a problem. And the problem was... About three hours flat rate time to change the part. We made the tool. He tried it. We modified it. And I took it to Vegas and saw David Rowland and showed it to him. He was so happy. He said, we need this. 
It took a year before the GM come out with it. When they come out with it, they changed the flat rate to a half hour. Did you get a commission on that one? No, my, the guy that had the idea, he thought he, I said, no, if you go get a patent, it's $20,000 and GM's going to beat you out of it anyway. So he got about a thousand dollars in tools, a leak detector and a black light and stuff. But I still see that guy. What do you got to, you want me to make? Because, and of course he didn't share it with anyone for a year because he was making money. <laughs> At the flat rate, right? Yeah. He was earning three and taking him a half. Yeah. Yeah. I've always had the feeling that a patent in four bucks will get you a cup of coffee most places. And it's just a matter of time till somebody steals it anyway. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt you, Tom. Why do you think it took Lyle 10 years? Because they had to have more input. Got it. So three more guys came along and said, we need something like this, or I have an idea. What did they do? Combine the ideas together or were they all identical? Do you know? The idea was the same. They were probably all different. Okay. Different how you got there, but I still get a check every three months. Damn. Well, you're, that, you're buying lunch. Mr. Residuals right here. Right. I love this. How do we get all this residuals? <laughs> yeah. It's I, like, I've always wanted to write a hit song. It's, yeah. <laughs> or wait a minute, do a, be a walk-in on a movie and take 1% of the gross. <laughs> yeah. Tom, you ever get any freebies from any of your suppliers for uh, all the tremendous cost savings you provided to them? Not anything real significant. However, I did get a couple of recovery machines over the years as prototypes and, and test machines. In fact, I still use one of them in my shop that was a prototype. I've provided a lot of information for nothing over the years and have been very counterproductive to my livelihood. I can imagine. One of the biggest mistakes I think that I ever made was back when American Freight was popular and had thousands of trucks across the country. Their headquarters was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I was supplying them rebuild A6 compressors at the time, and they were going through about 300 compressors a year on their fleet. This was back in the days where they were running typically Astros. And I get a call one day, come over to their shop and take a look at something. So I go over there and there's seven people there with suit and ties on and they got a whole bench full of compressors opened up and laying on the bench and saying, why are we having all these compressor failures? Looking at them, when fall came, they all had leaks in them. And of course the A6s all leaked in the front shaft seal. So they all got low on refrigerant. And the policy was to not fix the air conditioner until spring. On these over-the-road trucks, when they sat in one spot all winter long and the vibration from those old Detroit diesels, they literally wore the needle bearings on the shafts, a groove into the shafts. And they said, what can we do about this? And I said, first of all, you need to run it once in a while. It'd be ideal to have some refrigerant in it. But even if you don't run it because they have an oil pump in them, every time you do a maintenance on that truck, have the tech put a jumper wire on it, run the compressor for a couple of minutes to circulate the oil and lubricate the shafts and so forth. Secondly, back then we had you know, all the bugs and everything. And, yeah. and I said, every time that truck hits the yard in the front in the summertime, hit the condenser with a pressure washer. That was the only thing that they implemented of what I read recommended. And my compressor sales went from 300 units to 30 units the next year. <laughs> The biggest mistake I ever made. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Good way to push yourself out of business there, Tom. Congratulations. I sold Lyle for years and I always knew that they were always looking for innovative ideas for tools. I've never met someone that ever got a tool made. Back to Peter's question on early air conditioners. I had a friend that rebuilt or uh, had a restoration shop, a Buick and 
Cadillac and Pontiacs and Cadillac in the 50s. He just recently passed away. But it was interesting to go down there and see some of them. Today, the evaporator cores are either in the right front or under the dash. One of those cars from the 50 was on the left side of the dash. The evaporator core was next to the steering column, which was very interesting. And this is not air conditioning, but I think it's about a 58 Cadillac Eldorado with three two-barrel carburetors. It took a special distributor cap to put on that distributor. The guy finally found one, and I think it was about $800. Wow. Oh, for an original part. Yeah. Wow. And to pay that, of course, you're spending half a million dollars to restore a car. What's that? It's nothing. Yeah, that's nothing. We had another friend. So I'm going to call you guys the three amigos between Ward Atkinson, yourself, and John Bruner. John was down in Phoenix. And John was another part of that same crew that was just so deeply involved in the air conditioning industry and the training and just couldn't wait to get out there and learn and then teach all of us what we had to do. John lived about five miles from me, and he used to come by the dealership and and talk to me about problems. I'll tell you a deal that happened to me. I had a 1970 Buick LeSabre, and it belonged to a former GMC rep. In the morning, the thing would blow 40-degree air. In the afternoon, 60 was the best it could do. And I'm beating my head. I'm not knowing what's going on. And I put a dryer on it, and that particular model, you could put it on backwards, which the later ones they had where you could only go one way. And so we changed it, but John didn't wait to see what it done. He went down the street to my friend and told them that I put it on backwards. And I asked John, John said, no, I didn't tell him. I just asked him if they knew. And the bottom line was we pulled the cover off the evaporator cord and the bottom half was covered up with dog hair. And so he only, that fixed it problem, but knew at that time it, it took a while. Yeah. Amazing what you find. John and I were good friends. We took our wives to dinner and done things together. Yeah. Good friend of Max. Really yeah. good friend of Max. And I'm the one that got him here in the first place. Thank you for that. Yeah. Where do I get my money? Oh. <laughs> yeah. So guess what? You no longer have to buy lunch. I'm going to buy lunch. It was going to be your turn anyway. Well, thanks for letting me know. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm going to buy everybody lunch, in case you didn't know that. No. Yeah. Wow. John Bruner was was one in a million. He was uh, he was probably the most respected factory representative that I ever met. And he and I spend a lot of time to talking about things and bouncing ideas off of each other. And I had a lot of respect for John. He was a gem. Yeah. Same with me. I grew up with this industry with John. Max had a convention in Vegas. The one night John and I went, John done a clinic for aftermarkets and he's talking about, so he presented his deal and someone asked us, how do you cool a suburban? Well, there was a bulletin out on it. So while John was giving his deal, I researched the bulletin at this place and told the people in the fixes, it helped at five degrees, which was that. You know, John really was good at that. Yeah. Oh, we miss John. We miss Paul. And one last thing about Paul. You know Paul's car is? Personal car? We have it. Steve Shaber bought Paul Weisler's personal car after Paul passed away from Paul's daughter because she didn't know what to do with it. What kind of car? It's like a 2011 Ford, I want to say Fiesta. I could be wrong, could be an Escort or something, but it's got this funky manual, automatic manual transmission. 
again, I'm not a transmission guy. I don't know much about it, but some kind of odd early on CVT tire. I don't know what it is, but very few miles on it because Paul never drove it. And Paul never drove it because Paul always had a car delivered to him by a manufacturer. So that put him in it and hopefully he'd say good things. And I remember Paul had a Suzuki Kiyashi or something like that. There was only two in the U.S. And they had for Paul to do a review and he totaled it. And I said, so what do you do in a case like that? He said, I called him up and they said, I know you got two. Give me the other one. <laughs> they delivered the other. He was out at the LA Auto Show and this a number of years ago. And yes, they brought the second one. They said, please don't total this one. This is going to be a problem. It's a great story to end on. But my impression of this, we're here to honor Larry and Tom. And we're talking about all the other people that touched your lives were in and out of Max and in the industry. And what a testament it is to the camaraderie that exists in our industry. It's a small industry, and that's what I've always liked about it. If you look at AC specialists in the industry, there's really only maybe a couple in each state, if that, that are really into air conditioning, no air conditioning. There's a lot of people out there with a set of gauges that are want to be AC people, but there's just not that many of us around. So I consider it one of the smaller industries, a couple thousand people. And we're not getting any new ones. That's the challenge. I know that's one of the many topics that you'll have or you do have in your podcast. Yeah, I know. And what I find interesting is I've always known, always in my whole life, having been in the industry, that air conditioning is a specialty, but why didn't we just see, now I know I'm from Buffalo and I know it's, we have those occasional warm, maybe July and August, maybe, we hope. But in the South, are there specialty shops? Like I think someday there's going to be ADES calibration shops. We know we have Euro shops that are specialty for certain makes and models. Do you see, or is there in the South? Cause I've really, I don't, I'm not from there. AC specialty shops like yours, Tom? Are there a lot? Not a lot, no. Okay. I don't think that there's anybody else that really is strong. Is, Even yeah. in Vegas, we were probably the only one in South Dakota when we were up there. I know of a one in Nebraska. There are just not a lot of really specialty AC shops, people that can work on practically anything and are full service. Yeah, yeah but they are few and far between. There's a couple in Georgia. Gus Swenson has a shop that's dedicated to primarily air conditioning and does a lot of buses and so forth. But it's a little bit of a dying breed because we're, we live in a disposable world where let's just change the parts. And if I change enough parts, it'll eventually work. So Larry, <laughs> when you were a technician at a dealership, did you guys live in the parts cannon world? Is it, let's just keep putting on a part till we fix it? No, warranty would not let you do that. They want to know the root cause of what was Content. going on. And so if you had a problem, you you had avenues to go through. Yeah. Guys, thank you for co-hosting here. These guys in the industry are a whole lot better than me. So I appreciate you being here, Peter. And to Larry Hayes and Tom Massey, thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on your honor as a pioneer here. The Pioneer Award, saw the presentation yesterday. It was great legacy, you guys. And finally, Tom, you want to retire right here. I do. <laughs> I you see how quick think, that came up? I think 50 years of doing this is enough. Let somebody else have a chance. Yeah, he's got a shingle up right here. He does. And it's funny, a number of months ago. Why don't, don't you know, buy it? That's what we're going to talk about. Because <laughs> a number of months ago, Tom calls me. He says, my shop's for sale. Do you know anybody that might be interested? And I said, I'm not moving to Vegas, Tom. And no, I'm not interested. I said, but I'll put the word out for you. <laughs> 
All right. Okay. And I do appreciate that. Yeah, you've got you've got a parts distribution for air conditioning. You have equipment repair. You actually do service. We're four businesses under one roof. Wow. We do the chemicals, refrigerant, and all that. Very vertical in air conditioning. I used to be frustrated when I started in the industry and started doing air conditioning. Everybody stocked the compressor, but when you needed to repair a hose. There was no hose fitting available for it to build the hose. So I started stocking hose fittings. And before I knew it, other shops were calling me for hose fittings because they found out that I had them and put me in the hose business. And then my inventory kept growing from there. When I started in the parts business in 1979, I stocked nine compressors and I had about 95% coverage. Today, I stock 3,000 compressors and I'm not sure that I have quite 95%. What's the oldest, not the, not the oldest, most antique part itself, the one with collecting the most dust, but how far back could you go in supplying a compressor for a vehicle? Uh, mid fifties. Whoa. So if I needed a compressor for something from the mid fifties, Tom's the guy to call. Probably. Yeah. Right. If I want to own a shop that has compressors <laughs> from the mid fifties, Tom's the guy to let's, call. Let, let's put it this way. Parts do get obsolete on the shell, but they're only obsolete if you don't need it. Yeah. Over the years, as things weren't popular movers anymore, I wrote them off, but I didn't throw them out. If you're looking for a dryer for a 1980 vehicle or something like that, there's a real good chance that I probably still have it on the shelf. Although the, to, to sell it from a from an inventory perspective, nobody would probably want to buy it and put it on their shelf. But when they're looking for it, it's nice to have. So our listeners sitting out there listening says, oh, I need something. I have an old car. Yeah. Auto Air and More is the name of the company. Correct. You got a website? AutoAirandMore.com. Bingo. Now everyone can breathe a sigh of relief. You can get through to Tom. And oh, by the way, I have friends that own businesses and they live in one city and they own the business in another. Yeah. So don't think you can't buy his business. It could be on the table, but I know what the number is. And when you know what the number is, there's some negotiating what to work on. I started in Sioux Falls in 76, moved to Las Vegas in 93. From 93 until two years ago, when I sold Sioux Falls, our two locations were 1,568 miles apart. It is doable. Just do the math. 3,000, you said compressors? Yeah. Just do the math and you can figure out what the parts are worth in this I, building. I certainly know the number. OMG. Hey, and you're not too old to do this, right? You want to buy a business? No. You and your son, Tim? <laughs> no. no. Sure. Okay. Great to have you. So appreciate this. Tom Massey, Larry Hayes, Pioneer Award winners here at Max, the Mobile Air Climate Systems Conference, the 44th annual. Glad I could be here. Glad we could do this this episode. And thanks for co-hosting me. My Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. Been fun to be on there. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for being on board to listen and learn from the premier automotive aftermarket podcast. Until next time.